Professional wrestling, like real life, is full of surprises. Hi everyone, it's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To make a film in a prison is to make the film real. And what Eddie wanted to do was to make that film as real as possible in that same realm of scared straight, right? Of like, you know, if this doesn't scare you off, if you don't want to have to live your life in an environment like this, make different choices every chance you can. Welcome to More Than a Movie, American Me, a podcast that digs into the history and mystery of American Me, a film directed by and starring Edward James Olmos that had a huge impact on Latino cinema and culture. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and I'll be diving into the behind the scenes controversy. Every episode, I'm going to try to peel back a layer of the story by trying to go deeper into the intentions and motives behind the film and the backlash. You were just hearing the voice of Antoinette Levine. She was an associate producer and supervising location manager on American Me. What that means is Folsom Prison, Ramona Gardens, any of the places they managed to shoot this movie, which is a big part of what made the film feel so real, Antoinette was responsible for those. She's retired now. In fact, she lives on a remote island, so we had to interview her via Zoom, which is maybe why the audio sounds a little funky. But she worked on some location-heavy movies, including The Addams Family, The Rookie, and Under Siege. So, needless to say, she knows what she's talking about. 
A location manager, she says. Is reached out to by a producer or a film company. But what you're doing, what your job is, is you first are sent a script. Let's just say I've reached that level of location management. Let's let's just weave American Me in there for a minute. So I'd done a number of projects with Clint Eastwood's producer, David Valdez. And Eddie almost actually reached out to David. I, I didn't know this up front, but Sean, uh, I forgot Sean's last name for a minute there, but I got a reach out from the American Me production to please come have a meeting with Eddie Almost because David Valdez had recommended you. And so in essence, I was good at reading the script and getting a vision already. And once you've done that, you're already starting to have, you read that script before you even go in for your meeting. And for me, it became important for me to be interviewing who I was sitting across from as much as they were interviewing me. Once uh, you're sitting in there and you're pitching your thoughts about the film, if you're, if you're brought on board, you start working uh, with the production designer. The person who makes the locations look a certain way shoulder to shoulder with the director in terms of the vision of the film. The director, who in this case was Edward James Olmos, who was very, very actively involved in in the whole process of creation. And now we've all made movies. The only difference between this movie and other movies is that we're stuck in between a war zone. We're right in the cusp of like three different groups of kids. And uh, what Anna's afraid of, and rightfully so, is that there are so many as a kids here that she's afraid that it's going to cause a confrontation. So she's dealing with a director with a very specific vision for locations that have a lot of pretty dangerous complications to them. And as a location manager, you're actually doing a little pitching because you are also responsible for what's going on behind camera. Do you have a place to bring 100 people? Is the neighborhood or the vicinity going to let you in? Can you get a film permit in this location? And it goes on and on and on. Um, and in, in, in that way, let's use even American Me as an example of what do you do as a location manager? First of all, you've got to get the state of California to say yes. And secondly, because I became very good at it, I became really good at getting people that really in the real world should say no, <laughs> like absolutely not to say yes, including Secret Service, you know. Including in the 1990s in L.A., which was, as we've discussed, a really violent time. When we flash back to the time period that the film takes place in, right, to bring it back to America, The 90s. Well, the 90s is when you shot, right? And it was put out um, a time where there were, you know, riots in L.A., um, right. You know, you, 91. You, we were shooting the 92 riots. Yep. You location managed falling down, which is, is to me one of the most underrated films. This is a gangland thing, isn't it? We're having a, uh, a territorial dispute. Hmm? I mean, um, I've wandered into your pissing ground or whatever the damn thing is, and you've taken offense with my presence. And I can understand that. I love that movie. I've watched it. I don't know how many times. Um, and that, from what I understand, were you producing that? Were you working on that movie during the riots? Yes, we were working during the riots. The And that's a perfect, I think that's a great example. So I was down there looking for locations for falling down at the time when I got the call and it essentially was told um, to really just hurry up and kind of get out of there, if you will. 
I was essentially for those, I think it was a five or six day period of the riots where everything was shut down. Everything was on fire and people were um, purposefully angry. Um, It really links in so much. American Me was shot just one year before the L.A. riots and the main characters literally conceived through a sexual assault that occurs during a riot. The scene ends with Santana's adopted father, played by Sal Lopez, screaming out his girlfriend's name, Esperanza, Hope. Coming up, Antoinette tells me about getting the famous actor's trust and the warnings that she and the rest of the crew heard before they signed on to the movie. Here's another warning from me, though. It's commercial time. I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling, and it's all thanks to my grandma. Growing up, we would watch matches together, and that bond turned me into a lifelong fan. Hi, I'm Freddie Prinze Jr., and on my podcast, Wrestling with Freddie, we know how important it is to have the right teammate, because things can get pretty tricky quick. So, when things get complicated and you need help, State Farm gives you options. They show you what's possible for ensuring what matters to you. One of the things that matters to me? Sharing memories and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the My Cultura Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. I used to have so many men... How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late everyone, there was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. 
Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back. This is More Than a Movie. I'm Alex Fumero. Today, we're talking to associate producer Antoinette Levine, who managed to get Folsom Prison to say yes when Edward James almost wanted to film there. First, though, she had to get the job. Tell us again how you met Edward James Almos, and tell us, do you remember the first meeting, the first proper sit-down meeting with with EJO? I believe they'd give they'd give him it would they'd given him an office at on the Universal lot. I believe that first meeting. I believe it was at the Universal Lot. And now I'm kind of a little fuzzy because I'm really actually in the four walls of the room with Eddie sitting across from me at a desk. And so it likely, it very likely was at one of the producer's offices up on Universal because the location manager comes on very early, long before you get, um, you know, some sort of warehouse offices out in the world. Um, so in that way, for me, I was just so taken with his passion for this project. He he understood enough about filmmaking in that way. Certainly, maybe even coming off, he you know he did stand in the liver. Stand in the liver was before that. Um, certainly, Miami Vice. Um, he'd been on the streets in Miami, so he knew enough to know that, and he knew enough to reach out to David Valdez to look for a location manager who had chutzpah, you know, who you know who had ganas who was going to show up and, and deliver. Um, but he wanted to let me know. He said, I'm going to be having this conversation with all my department heads. Um, you know, the project, the subject of this film is very near and dear to my heart. 
I want to have this film made so I can take it around these United States of America and speak to young people. So they might become determined to make different choices when choices are presented to them and options are available because he knows that there isn't space for choices. But he said, I'm making this film for that reason, but I have to have you know that it's not going to be easy and it may not always be safe. We were we we could potentially be treading on uh, sensitive toes. Mm. Um, absolutely, it was all of that. It was it was it was that we were going to want to film in places where really you shouldn't bring a hundred people. Folsom State Prison, for instance, um, we didn't know we would get to film there, and that was a. I have to. Uh, I don't if it, if you're okay with me jumping uh, ahead, just to say a little bit about Eddie in the atmosphere of negotiating Folsom state prison. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, yeah, let's talk about Folsom because people need to understand if you've seen this movie, it was shot in an actual active prison, which I have a lot of questions about, but I just want to hear you tell us a little bit about, about that experience. All right. I would just say his passion and his presence, his passion and his presence were so vital to the meeting that we were to have up at Folsom state prison. Um, I'd helped uh, organize and schedule a meeting with the with the warden mm. because because the 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 warden is like the mayor or the president of the United States is like the warden. It's his prison. It's his prison. And even that, ha- you know, the California state that's a particular permit process, but that w- it wasn't even possible without the warden signing off on the project. Right. And so I was able to schedule a meeting with them and, and bring in, in, in my peeps. And I remember this meeting because the visual I have of it is that we were sitting in a circle. Hmm. I remember that that's my impression of it. I do believe we were sitting, maybe it could have even been folding chairs because I didn't feel like it was really comfortable, but right. we were sitting in a circle as for this meeting it was um, it was so amazing because it was almost like a tag team between myself and Eddie. Well, if you're talking to a warden and maybe his lieutenants or, you know, his key people who we'd w- want to have around him at the same time to have this conversation, a no would have been absolutely the right answer. Right. I mean, that's the that's the, you know, uh, that that's my background is turning no's into yeses. Sure. But that was Eddie's presence was like critical to this because um yeah, sure you can say we're universal pictures, you can try and you know throw that card out, all of that, but it was his his passionate intention for this film to make some sort of difference. And if these uh prison authority uh figures had any sensibility. And this is, I believe, prior to all this huge privatization of present prisons, the prison system in the United States, that they were still California employees and they still were intent upon their mission of doing some sort of good in this incarceration rehabilitation industry. Now, um, some of them had heart. I think there was there was there was an alignment with a sort of synchronistic possibility here. I actually scouted a lot of prisons. I went to Soledad. I went I went to a lot of different prisons mm. and and scouted a lot of prisons. It was fulsome that visually really worked for the picture. 
Um, but they were the ones that said yes to this meeting as well. But his presence in that meeting is what got us to yes. The Aryan Brotherhood and the Black Gorilla family shared the yard. But Folsom belonged to us, the oldest clica, La M, the Mexican Mafia. So let, let's touch on that for a second. So why a real prison? Oh, such a great question. Let's just contrast that with the opposite of a real prison, mm. uh, a set. In, in the film industry, what you do instead of a prison is you do a set. And yet there are sets in the L.A. Uh, Hollywood region, uh, Wells, where they've built fake prisons. You just don't have you don't have the scope. A director wants that scope. You want that feeling and that sensibility that it's real. But I feel I have a sense in, in, of that, that Eddie also wanted for his actors and for his audience to really get to really be in prison with us. Yeah. To really be in prison. My prison experience was I got to feel I got to feel the um, as as an invitee. Um, I got to feel the terror of being locked up um, in that sense, because even as a free person, you're coming into the prison and you're not free. You're absolutely not free. So imagine if you were a prisoner and you're trying to live your life out in this place. Um, there's just there's just there's a sense of, of endless despair. So. To make a film in a prison is to make the film real. And what Eddie wanted to do was to make that film as real as possible in that same realm of scared straight, right? Of like, you know, if this doesn't scare you off, if you don't want to have to live your life in an environment like this, make different choices every chance you can. Do you think that he fed off of being in this environment? Was that part of his way of direct... of? Was he channeling that environment to direct, to act? Were you able to sort of see that as, as it was happening? I would say yes, um, because he's actually the adamant actor when he's in front of camera. But I do believe that he was uh, brilliant in his conception of the actual infrastructure of the film the world yeah. to say make it as real as possible because then i'm 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 that's my i'm directing all of my young actors and even the extras and whoever whoever you know we enrolled i think hundreds of extras you know so it was like he wanted the whole atmosphere like extras if we in, weren't in a extras yeah, the in prisoners, the prison the, the prisoners. prisoners were in the film yeah so there's a piece of that too like a part of our that whole circle meeting with the warden. What about the gangs, though? Because this is another thing that, you know, like we talked to the Dannys, right? We talked to Danny Villarreal and Danny De La Paz, Danny, um, yeah. Little mm -hmm. Puppet and Puppet. And one of the things that they said was, you know, and this is without getting in too much into the controversy surrounding the film, the that that like you don't make a movie like this in prison unless you have the OK of the bosses in the gangs, right? That they're, they're just not going to allow. And that was a very compelling point that they made as a location manager. Were you having to kind of have conversations with the guys that ran a certain block or ran a certain area? No, I was not. I didn't have to be uh, in, in, engaged with 
any of I was actually not allowed to be you're you're you you you're never supposed to engage with any of the inmates um even when they're extras even when they're extras um and it, it it's like you just you, you aren't engaging with the inmates like it, that just seemed to be like kind of a I don't know how spoken that was but we, we did do orientations for all of the crew members before they could come in, very, very strict orientations. I don't have any of those materials with me, so I don't remember what we said, but we were telling everyone to button it down. Like they literally, you just imagine uh, any scene from any movie where the friends or family are coming to visit the inmate. Just that is very, is very telling that they're not supposed to touch or they're not supposed to give them anything. So it was, it was, we were still separated from the inmates, mm-hmm. right? Um, in that way. So yes, there was no, for me, I don't know who would have done the permission getting of the, I don't even know what was going on in that element or realm. I, I believe that even after we got the permission from the warden that yes, go ahead. And then it was, it was step by step by step. It wasn't like, oh, then we're just going to come in next week and film. Then it was like, where are we going to film inside Bolson State Prison? Mm -hmm. And so I had to walk around and do more location scouting within the campus, if you will, the complex. Was that scary? Of course, as a woman, as a female and, uh, but the beautiful thing was, was happened is that here's the thing. There was a captain who was the captain of the cell block that we were going to use who began to walk with me. And once that happened, there were no more cat callings. There was no more. So I ended up having um, I got respect. I ended up getting respect. And so my fear level went down. Like I was never afraid, but it was always very uh frazzling, energetically frazzling, tiring, you know, because you always you do have a certain sense of red alert going into a man's prison. Uh, He was he was in charge. He was the one who was able to make all of the yes, no decisions uh, as we moved forward internally in the prison. And so I, I was shoulder to shoulder with him a lot because in filmmaking, there's this constant, constant asking for asking for you're always asking you're you're always asking for something more or you're asking for something different or can we you know that sort of there's always changes and so but I was working with a great uh first director who understood um you know he's he's always assisting Eddie and I think that's why the associated producer credit for me because so much of my job was really to understand what the limitations are um as much as I'm going to always push for what the company needs and mostly for what a director needs on a film, what's their vision for the film. If our job as location managers, no matter what the film is, even as dude, my dude, where's my car is to understand what the limitations are. It's like, you cannot, we know we cannot go back and ask for another schedule change. It ain't going to happen. We're going to get locked out here. And with that in mind, being in a prison, were you ever concerned were there ever any events that you were like, oh, OK, this I might be in danger? No, it was eventless because everybody's on their best behavior. Yep. Um, the inmates are sort of uh, in a way almost bragged if you want to be on this film. Right. <laughs> um, 
So it's a perk for some of them. Yeah, it was a perk because it was something different. It was something interesting to do, something they'd probably never done before in their lives and might never do again. The only crew members that left, because I believe Eddie had given that same cautionary tale speech to all of any department head coming in, but certainly at our final production meeting, it was just too much for them. Um, the, the catcalling that I receive as a woman, the men would receive as well. And they didn't have the protection of a captain walking around with them. And, they, and a couple of them left. And that was the only time anybody left. So that was the only incident, if you will, that verged on. You shot in real people's lives. Yes. Right. Like when we talk about shooting in an apartment building in Boyle Heights, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about a home. And it was a complex. And the beautiful thing about it, Alex, was that it was a complex that um, it was an interior. It was built in the late 20s, I believe. And if you walk through this, the stucco gate walls, you come into a courtyard and each of the apartments had a little stair case coming down to the middle of the courtyard. So it isn't like a modern day, you know, hallway with doors and everybody separated. This was an interior courtyard, apartments, doors facing each with a stoop, sort of East Coast style. Each apartment had a stoop and there was all these different lives going on in each one of those units. That's why it worked beautifully for the film. But the, the people that lived there, their lives were all going on at the same time. We come into this one location and all of a sudden who's there to greet us but a little kid, three years old. For whatever reasons, the parents are not around him. He's a very tough little boy. He has been on the street for a long, long time. You sleepy? You want to be in the movie with us? You want to be in the movie with us? See what they're doing? It makes you sensitive towards the fact that environment is everything. You can see it. If this child was getting exposed to a person even reading a book, he would accept it. Don't laugh, okay? Don't laugh, Jojo. Don't laugh. Whatever you do, you're on camera, so don't laugh, okay? He is the future gang member because he's out on the streets and he sees it going on and he's attracted to it. Yeah, he was down during the the, the riots in 92, like absolutely down into the community talking with people, you know, in a, absolutely. So being in the neighborhood... Going out on the streets with Eddie, even during the scouting, it, it was just an amazing community engagement experience. Um, I didn't catch a lot of the the flack that some people talk about mm. that the film may have been stirring up. Um, I, I I didn't engage with that. Maybe from a place of there's nothing I can do about how people are going to react to this film. Right. I would hope that there's going to be a larger um, percentage of the global community that is going to look at this film for its meaningfulness, um, you know, for its storytelling, for its ability to be a cautionary tale. Um, but absolutely going out into the, the vibrant Latino community on the east side of L.A., during the the pre-production and the filming of the film was uh, maybe almost 90% just a very inspirational. uh, I keep getting flashbacks from uh, walking through the Mercado. There's, um, and I remember Eddie at one time saying, Oh my God, I could, I could be, I could be South of the border right now Um, for the richness of the culture. 
but we're walking through a mercado with on a final tech scout, if you will. There was a shop that I had been looking for and I was showing it to them to uh, for us to be able to utilize. And the people uh, were just so enamored with Eddie and he was so graceful and would just take time, talk and say hello. It was never about him. It was always about community um, and our purpose for being there. Coming up, I ask Antoinette about her experience with gang consultant and murder victim Anna Lizarraga, as well as the pressure Edward James almost was under making American Me. I love sharing positive tips with my listeners on everything from health challenges to relationship troubles. Because life happens, baby, but you got this. Hi there, I'm Honey German, and I know we can all use some positive energy these days. That's why I make sure to empower my community, because a bit of motivation and support can go a long way. And luckily, we have State Farm to support us. Like when you talk to a State Farm agent to choose the coverage you need, and they have the options to protect the things you value most. It's the perfect positive tip you need. State Farm is also a big supporter of the My Cultura Podcast Network, where we as podcast hosts get to share our experiences and stories. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late everyone, there was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. 
And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back to More Than a Movie. I'm Alex Fumero. We're talking to Antoinette Levine, the movie's location manager. The movie was able to shoot in Boyle Heights thanks to the work of a gang interventionist and consultant named Anna Lizarraga, who was ultimately murdered just weeks after the film's release. My experience of Anna was that she was a key component to our community relations um, in the way that she helped mentor our Hollywood union selves, um, our crew members, and in that way of, um, of proper behavior um, when they're going on uh, bringing their selves and their professional livelihoods into to neighborhoods that are claimed by gangs um, that, that were, were really in somebody else's neighborhood. And we're the visitors. And what's the proper way to show up? Um, and mannerisms and, and uh, clothing, you know, you're not wearing red or black or, or uh, blue or whatever the colors may have been um, that were uh, uh, prominent colors of the particular gangs. What made her an ex? How did she know? How did she know how to guide you that way? Because she worked in youth gang services. She was a community uh uh, like um, I didn't know a lot of this about her before I worked with her because she was almost like another crew member in or almost consultant. And um, I was so deeply engaged with my responsibilities on the project. Um, so I learned more of it later, um, you know, reading more about her background. But she was a beloved um, in the youth gang services uh, offices or in, in area as a mentor and a guide, sort of like an abuela, if you will, certainly a tia. And uh, she was very important to the community. And uh, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. I'm not, I'm just going to honor her life with that. Edward James almost must have been under an inordinate amount of pressure, whether he would ever even admit that or not. To be a Chicano filmmaker at this time, making a movie about 
essentially his people, albeit a, a sector of his people that he hoped would be different, um, with an activist purpose and a studio behind him who was sort of behind him, but not super present. And, and at the same time, trying to commit himself to this incredibly realistic representation of his hood, you know, um, and his, and his, uh, you know, the heritage of these places that have been marginalized, right? Like the, I mean, he is juggling chainsaws here, right? Yes. And Alex, this was the nineties. How many years ago was this? A billion. Um, you know, today it would only be a slight difference. Um, it, for me, the question of how much there's still a missing of presence and there's still a missing of presence. Um, you, the Hollywood wants to 4%. Advocate. Yeah. We're, we're four, we represent four acting, just acting wise, 4%, almost 20% of the population, 4% on TV. So, you know, before we, before we wrap things up, I just, I really just wanted to ask you of all the scenes in the film, which one is your favorite and why? It might've been where Eddie's character Santana was, um, speaking with his, I believe I, it was the little boy. He was speaking with the little boy who I think was his little brother outside during, uh, uh, I think there was a party or a wedding. Uh, it was that, it was that, it was the scene with the adult male and the young youthful male. Um, and that it was tender. It was a tender moment. Check it out. The letters you wrote me from the time I was a little vato. I used to read them to my homeboys. They listened to Said it was like poetry the way you wrote them. To me, it's like a metaphor and a symbol of uh, the whole film and the importance of the film. And also there was a naivete it's, it felt um, on, on the part of the adults. Um, that is also a, a delicate and tender piece, a certain naivete. On our next episode, we speak with Danny Haro, who fielded phone calls from and was even followed by the Mexican mafia for his role as Edward James Almost's right-hand man on American Me. More Than a Movie, American Me is a production of Exile Content Studios in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura Podcast Network and Trojan Horse Media. The show is produced by me, Alex Fumero, at Angry Yuka on the internets. And our senior producer is Nigel Duara. Our executive producers are Rose Reed, Nando Vila, and Kareem Tapsh. Production assistance from Sabine Jansen and Stella Emmett. Mixing and sound design by Eduardo Albornoz. Our executive producers at iHeart are Giselle Bances and Arlene Santana. For more podcasts, listen to the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. 
To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 